All right, let's uh, plunge ahead here. We've got a lot to cover today because we have to cover, uh, if we get to cover all this, we'll be covering uh, 13 years of the Apostles' life, from A.D. 55 to A.D. 68. And I was just thinking about that. You know, the Apostle Paul did a lot in these next 13 years. It's amazing how much he does. You know, our lives are pretty generally routine, go to work, come back, go to work, come back. This guy's, you know, living a very full life, running around the world, doing all kinds of things in the next 13 years. So number one, Paul appeared before the Areopagus at Corinth. Pastor Ken referred to it today, he called it Mars Hill, because Ares is the Greek word for the god Ares, the god of war, and the Latin is Mars, so the King James says Mars. The RNIV says Ares, Areopagus is the council. No, that's at Athens. Paul was in Athens there before the Areopagus, the council. Paul appeared before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. That's true. That was at Corinth. Remember the Bema seat, that picture we showed of that? Pro, uh, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and the capital of Achaia was Corinth. Uh, there were Paul wrote the Thessalonian letters from Athens. No, we said he wrote those uh, from Corinth, from Corinth, on his second missionary journey. Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia. True, true. So Paul goes to Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, and when we left him last time, he had come back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and according to the book of Acts, he spends three years there in Ephesus. And that's where he's at right when we start today. Number five, Paul met Apollos when he came to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. <clears throat> no, he didn't meet him there. Paul came to Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey on his way back to Jerusalem. He stops in. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. He goes on to Jerusalem. And then Apollos comes to Ephesus and they instruct him more fully in the way of the Lord, and he goes on to Corinth. And Paul then comes to Ephesus. We find Paul in Ephesus now. Apollos has gone on to Corinth, so Paul did not meet him then. Now in the Corinthian letters, as we'll see, he mentions Apollos, who had been there at Corinth. Uh, the progress of the gospel at Ephesus under Paul's ministry had turned many people away from the worship of Artemis. True, true. Remember that uh, the people who made those little silver shrines were very upset that people weren't buying the souvenirs, you know, for coming to, Arte coming to Ephesus to celebrate the goddess Artemis, the, the Latin name for her is Diana. So these gods and goddesses had different names in the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon. In the, in the Latin, when I took Latin, Diana was sort of a tomboy huntress kind of person. But they, they, these, these gods and goddesses had different uh, uh, biographies and other... Call and at Ephesus, she was a fertility goddess. Uh, same, supposed to be the same person, but she was responsible for helping fertility. Uh, Artemis. All right. So we're talking about the third missionary journey. Paul is, we're in the middle of the third missionary journey. In the third missionary journey, as we saw last time in Acts 18, Paul travels again through Syria, Cilicia, and back through Galatia, where he had established churches on his first missionary journey. And then he goes over to Ephesus. Remember, he had wanted to do this on his second missionary journey, 
But God said no. He wanted to go to Bithynia. God said no. He went to Troas, got the Macedonian call, went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. So now he does go and takes that road into Ephesus. And uh, we talked last time about his experience at Ephesus, what went on there, and so on. And at the end, sort of, he's they have this riot, this sort of riotous meeting there in the theater and so forth. So it is from Corinth, uh, it is from Ephesus, that Paul writes 1 Corinthians. We noticed that last time, but we didn't talk about 1 Corinthians. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians. I can't talk much about it. We spent a whole year, <laughs> this past year, uh, past last fall and spring, studying 1 Corinthians. That's been a long time there, and we can't, don't have time today. Unfortunately, we've got a lot to cover here if we can. But the destination, of course, is the city of Corinth, where Paul... Uh, went on his second missionary journey. I say it's one of the oldest Greek cities. We talked about this before. Destroyed by uh, Rome in 146 B.C. when the Romans conquered Greece. Julius Caesar rebuilt it in 46 uh, B.C. 27 B.C. Augustus Caesar made it the capital of Achaia. In 844 it became a senatorial province. And so when Paul came there, he met Gallio. He was a proconsul because that's just what a senatorial province is, is governed by. It was a very pop, uh, cosmopolitan, uh, large colony of Jews there, very wicked city by reputation. Paul talks about the gods many and the lords many. He's talking about the Roman Greek pantheon, Zeus and so forth, and the lords many are sort of mystery religions. The Romans allowed other religions eventually to come in and absorb them especially from Egypt, various religions from there. And the chief deity was Aphrodite. We looked at some uh, some places at Corinth last time, and we noticed that her temple was on the top of this mountain, Acro Corinth, up from uh, Corinth there. And... Uh, so we notice that the church was founded by the apostle on his second missionary journey, Acts 18. He comes there, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, you remember. They're of the same profession as he is and so forth. And eventually they leave with him when he leaves and goes to Ephesus and they stay in Ephesus. And Paul uh, uh, goes back to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, comes back now to on his third missionary journey. So as far as the place and date of writing is concerned, um, it's written from Ephesus. I won't take time to look at those verses, but it's very clear it is. Toward the end of his three-year residence on this third missionary journey. That may be about eighty fifty-five. I said we had to cover about 13 years because Paul dies probably about A.D. 68, martyred in Rome. The occasion... The occasion is basically that Paul received various reports from individuals in the in the church, the house of Chloe. Others have spoken to him. He's got a letter from the church, 1 Corinthians 7. He's basically responding to issues that have been brought up uh, in the church. I mentioned various issues there, divisions in the church, immorality, litigation, in pagan courts, abuse of the Lord's Supper, false teaching concerning the resurrection. So I'm not going to try to cover 1 Corinthians today because it's just too much uh, to do here. But just the outline you can see, uh, I've got it, that's the way I've divided up and taught it, is the first section, 110 through 421, deals with some divisions in the church. Some people say, you know, I'm following Paul, and I'm following Apollos, and I'm following Cephas, and so forth kind of rallying around human leaders and so forth, that kind of thing is going on. Uh, he talks about number three there, problems communicated by common rumor. There he talks about immorality in the church, the case of incest in chapter five. Uh, a man and has his father's wife, that is his stepmother. 
There's lawsuits in chapter 6. People are taking each other to court over petty matters, kind of civil matters, kinds of things. There's a question about liberty, about going to prostitutes. You know, if you look at these epistles, Paul has a, a lot to say about sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is always a problem in every society, but it was a problem there especially because in the ancient world, there was no, uh, nothing, it was not considered immoral for men to go to prostitutes. That was not considered a problem. It wasn't considered a breakup of the family. Uh, men were not expected to be faithful in that sense. Well, in Christianity, you are. So Paul deals with that, you know, in practically every epistle, every letter that he has to deal with. He deals with problems communicated by official letter. That's marriage and related problems. You know, what to do about what happens when you're, when you marry an unbeliever. Do you divorce them? I mean, if you, if you get saved, you're married to an unbeliever and you get saved. One of you gets saved, do you divorce? Paul says no. So he has a lot of advice about marriage there. He has a thing about food sacrifice to idols. This was another big problem because in the pagan world, people spent a lot of time going to the pagan temples. There was no separation of religion and state. The state, Rome, uh, all religion was connected to the government. So the government had festivals in the temples, civic festivals, birthday parties, Everything revolved around the temple, so people went to the temples. Part of going to the temple was, even if you went to a birthday party, so we had invitations for the birthday of a one-year-old at the temple in Corinth. Come and come to the temple. Well, all those involved, you know, worshiping the god or the goddess. You just can't, you just can't go and say we're going, we're going to the temple and just celebrate the birthday. No, you're going to have to worship too. That's part of it. So Paul has to forbid that kind of attendance of the temple. That's a big problem in the pagan world. Uh, he talks about head coverings. Uh, it was a custom in the ancient world for, uh, in Corinth and other places, for married women to cover their head. And uh, it was a sign of uh, submission to their husbands and... Uh, that was the custom. And some Christian women are disregarding that custom, and Paul says, no, uh, we can't do that. There's a problem with the Lord's Supper, conduct at the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is a problem of neglecting those who are rather poor. They usually would celebrate, they had their church in a home, usually a rich person's home. And uh, you had people of all classes. You had you know slaves. You had very poor people. You had some rich people. And apparently, uh, the poorer people were being neglected. They usually celebrate this with a meal. So you had a meal, then you had the Lord's Supper. And there apparently it may have been private portions for the richer who sat in the, the dining room, you know, uh, kind of thing. So, uh, you know, if you ever had that where you have a big group at your house and you have some people in the dining room and the kids are on a card table somewhere, you know. Well, <laughs> the poor people were out there in the atrium. They were outside, you know, sitting out there, you know, eating probably the lesser goodies. And Paul says, no, that's just, that's just <coughs> foreign to the fact of our community relationship. There's a thing about spiritual gifts, the abuse of spiritual gifts. I won't go into all that. And there was the not denial of the bodily resurrection. Now, the reason for that we saw that uh, we saw that at Athens when we talked about Acts 17. When Paul talked about Jesus and the resurrection, they scoffed because remember the Greeks did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They thought the body is the prison house of the soul. So when you die, you get rid of the body. No one would want a body. Well, we don't want a the same body. We want a glorified body. But anyway, the idea of a resurrection was a problem for them. And Paul has to refute that. Uh, let's go on and uh, talk about the continuation of that third missionary journey. This is the return to Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul is in Ephesus. 
He's written uh, 1 Corinthians, and he sets out for Macedonia. He moved north to Troas here, the text we learn from 2 Corinthians especially. He expected to meet Titus there, whom he had earlier sent to Corinth to deal with and report on the situation in the church, but he did not meet him until he reached to Macedonia. And from Macedonia, Paul writes 2 Corinthians in AD 56. So, I'm not going to stop for 2 Corinthians right now. I'm just going to go one step further here. But right here is where he writes 2 Corinthians in about AD 56. So, Paul goes to Macedonia, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Go that for a second. When the uproar had ended, this was the uh, problem at Ephesus with the guild there and their upsetting about Paul when they were, took him to the theater there. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples uh, and after encouraged them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally came to Greece. So he goes to Macedonia, he's in Philippi and other places maybe. And then he comes down to Greece, where we're told where he stayed three months. Um, it's from uh, Corinth here now that he writes uh, Romans in AD 56. So he writes 2 Corinthians first from Macedonia. Now he comes down to Greece after some ministry there. He stays in Corinth for three months, and here is where he writes Romans. So let's just talk about, for a second, 2 Corinthians and Romans. I spent about a semester teaching 2 Corinthians, so we can't say much about that here today. But we, that, I think there's, if you're interested, those tapes are available on the thing, and the the, uh, the notes and so forth are still available. Well, the destination, of course, is First Corinthians, which we've already talked about here. Um, um, the date and place of writing: Paul wrote Second Corinthians in eighty six from Macedonia, following his meeting with Titus. The exact location is unknown, though Philippi might be the likely place. And that means he wrote this epistle, as I said, about A.D. 56. So 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, he goes to Macedonia, and he writes 2 Corinthians. The occasion and purpose, Titus's encouraging report, prompted Paul to reestablish better relations with the church and regain their confidence by demonstrating the validity of his ministry. In order to do this, Paul needed to defend his apostleship against false teachers who infiltrated the church. There's also the necessary further instruction regarding the collection in order to get the Corinthians to fulfill what they had promised. So what's happened here is Paul has some stormy relationships with the Corinthians. And he has written 1 Corinthians, and what I didn't mention here, I don't have time to mention, is in between the writing of 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul apparently wrote another letter that uh, he refers to in 2 Corinthians that is not in the canon. Uh, Paul wrote a lot of letters, probably they're not in the canon, that God didn't see to preserve for, for our edification. But he writes another letter there, sometimes called the, the painful letter, the severe letter, and he actually makes a trip over there that's not even in the book of Acts while he's at Ephesus, and then he comes back, and then he sends Titus to find out how they're doing. There's stormy relations. Titus doesn't come to Ephesus. He goes. Paul goes to Troas. He waits for. He waits for Titus to come. Titus doesn't come. He goes to Macedonia. Titus comes and has a pretty good report. They have, things are kind of patched up. You know, they've repented and so forth, and so on. And so, uh, Paul uh, from Macedonia writes Second Corinthians then uh, from that place. So what does this Second Corinthians have to do with? Well, as I say, he has a greeting and a thanksgiving, and then in one twelve through 7.16, that long section, he defends his ministry against criticism. So Paul is being criticized at Corinth. 
There's there's indication of that in First Corinthians. You know, uh, some people were upset with Paul's speaking style, his rhetoric, his the way he talked, and so forth. That comes out even in First Corinthians. Uh, he's being accused of not being genuine. He's accused in cha- in First Corinthians here, chapter two, Second Corinthians chapter two, of sort of doing this for money, for profit. He's sort of peddling the gospel for money. And that's, that's, they're accusing him of that. Now, one of the problems is there's these other people coming in, false teachers who are coming in. They're saying things about Paul. And the big thing is they're questioning his apostolic authority. Is this guy really an apostle? There are false teachers coming in who are de- denying that and so forth. So uh, Paul has to, these chapters, I can't go into all the details, he has to deal with a lot of issues. He defends his apostleship. He defends his authority. He defends the character of his ministry, and he appeals for reconciliation. Now, he talks about Titus having come back from them and says, you know, that, that Titus gave him a good report, that they are they restored their relationship with him and so forth. And so he goes on there in number three to talk about the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. One of the things that Paul has been concerned about throughout his life is that he thinks the Gentile churches should help out the mother church or the people in Judea. Uh, we don't understand all of that, but apparently they faced a lot of persecution over the years. We saw that first, well, we saw in Acts chapter 11, what's called the famine relief visit, Paul's second visit. He and Barnabas went down because there was a famine there and so forth. And that's talked about in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul goes down there And the main thing he's talking about in Galatians chapter 2 is, I was equal to those other apostles. He's defending his authority in Galatians. But he says, they only ask that we continue to remember the poor. And Paul says, we were eager to do that. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I didn't mention, Paul says, on the first day of the week, I want you to come together and bring some money. This is an offering for those poor people, for the poor, for whatever they're suffering down in Judea. So he mentions this 1 Corinthians, and now in 2 Corinthians he mentions it again. Because remember, Paul is in Macedonia right now. He's up here. He's writing. And in this section he says, you know, these people up here in Macedonia, they are really good givers, man. <laughs> They've really been generous. They've been sacrificial giving. And guess what? I've been bragging to these Macedonians about you Corinthians, what good givers you are. I'm, this is the Bill Combs paraphrase here. <laughs> but he says, I've been bragging about you. And so what, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to come down to see you shortly, and I'm going to bring some people from Macedonia. And, you know, so I want you to be prepared. It'd be embarrassing if I got there and you didn't have your offering ready, you know, after I've been bragging about you. And that's what he's saying there in this Second Corinthians, that, that he is coming and he is bringing some brothers. What Paul did was when he collected this offering, he would take representatives from those churches who gave with him. And they traveled with him and came back to Jerusalem with him as sort of representatives of the churches with that particular offering. So he writes this Second Corinthians from... Uh, from Macedonia. Finally, chapter 10, he's defending his authority against false teachers. He calls them, quote, super apostles. And he says, I'm an apostle. And here's how you can tell the signs of an apostle. I'm God doing the signs of the apostle. Miracles and wonders. <laughs> the miracles and the wonders and the signs that I do. Signs, miracles, and wonders. That's an indication of apostolic authority. People who can do that are apostles. Of course, that's what we have today. We have all kinds of people in the United States, this new apostle movement, so, you know, out in California, who claim to be apostles. They're apostles. They're doing signs and wonders. Well, if they could do signs and wonders, really, like the Apostle Paul, I'd believe it, but they're not doing those kinds of miracles. So Paul goes on to, as we said, uh, Corinth, And when he gets to Corinth, he spends three months there, Acts chapter 20, verse 3. And there he writes the epistle to the Romans. 
I taught that here too. Here, that's this is a complex book. Obviously, we can't discuss all that, but we can say a little bit, maybe. So, Paul is writing to Rome. Destination was the capital of the empire, largest city. People estimate maybe a million people, possibly. We don't know exactly. There was a large Jewish population, several synagogues. Church wasn't founded by Paul, very clear from his epistle. Been established some years before, maybe on the day of Pentecost. People from from Rome were at the day of Pentecost. Maybe they came back, or people from other places in the empire came to Rome. So we don't know how it was founded exactly. As far as the date and place of writing, remember it's written when Paul goes to Corinth and spends three months there, as I said. Paul makes several references in the book of Romans to Corinth. So we know he's in Corinth. I won't go into all that right now. As far as the occasion and purpose, Paul was planning to visit Rome, he says, and Phoebe was available, he mentions her, to send a letter to them. Paul wanted the, his, the assistance of the Romans in his missionary trip to Spain, including their prayer support. If Rome is to be Paul's new home base, like Antioch had been, then he needed to be to ground the already established Roman church in the understanding of the gospel, which is, in fact, the only true understanding of the gospel. So it's interesting, a couple of times in Romans, he calls it my gospel. My gospel. And the reason he does that is because <clears throat> Paul didn't establish this church, but he wants to go there to Rome and use that as the base for operations in the western part of the empire. But it's just like, you know, we send out missionaries. Missionaries may call us our home church. You want your home church to be behind you. You want you you want to agree with your home church and doctrine and everything. You know, you don't want you know, you don't want to be sent out by a church you don't even agree with, you know. Paul has to have support. He has to have financial support, he has to have prayer support, he has to have people who will support him. So he wants to use Rome, but he didn't establish a church. But he's the apostle of the Gentiles, and he ain't no other. <laughs> Excuse my grammar. There's only one apostle of Gentiles, and his gospel is the only gospel. It's the true gospel. So this is the most theological of Paul's epistles. It's sort of a kind of a systematic theology, sort of. The theme is the gospel. And so he carefully lays out the gospel very clearly here for the Romans. So here's what you should believe. Let's get on the same page here. We want to be on the same page if I'm going to go there and I'm going to, you know, be sent out by you and so forth and you're going to support me. So that's what this is. Very theological, very systematic Bible doctrine. He has an introduction. Then he has a statement of the theme. Remember, the theme is really the gospel. And so, you know, he states that very clearly in Romans chapter 1. Famous verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the, the way to be right with God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as written, the just righteous will live by faith. So, uh, the first section here, 118 through 425, deals with the revelation of the righteousness that is from God by faith alone. So, 118 through 425 deals with how to be saved. Sometimes we say it deals with justification. You know that very clearly because the next verse after 425 is 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. So Paul is just summing up chapters 1 through 4 for us. In 5.1, therefore we've been justified by faith. That's clear. We got that. Let's go on to sanctification now. So before, however, you can talk about how to be justified by faith you got to explain why you need that faith, you know. Uh, so you've got to you've got to get a person lost before you get them saved. <laughs> and so the first thing Paul does talks about is the lostness of the human race. He explains total depravity, total inability. And so he explains we've all sinned. 
and we've come short of the glory of God and so forth. He goes through Gentiles have sinned, but also Jews, chapter 2. They've also sinned. Even though they had God's law, they haven't kept God's law, they're sinners, and they need salvation. Chapter 3, he gets down to Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, you know, chapter 3. You're justified by faith. You're declared righteous by faith. He gives the example of Abraham, even in the Old Testament. Abraham was justified by faith. And so that's 118 through 425. And then he gets to 51 through 839, which is really more of a sanctification and glorification there in chapter 8. So he talks about the fact that even though we're justified, the remnants of, remnants of sin are still there. And how do we deal with that? And that's chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, so forth. I'm sorry, I can't say more about that right now. But uh, then he gets to chapters 9 through 11. What about Israel? You know, there's clearly a large Jewish listening audience here. There's so much Jewish stuff in this stuff. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, you know, there's so, uh, I mean, 9, 10, 11, there's so much Jewish stuff here. And so the question is, what about Jews? How do they fit into this? You know, where, how does this fit into this program that you're announcing, Paul? Where do they fit? That's a big issue. And so he explains that here in uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, that they are God's elect people, but unfortunately they turned away. But there is coming a future time when Israel as a whole, as a large group, will turn back to their Messiah in the future. He'll come and they will turn to him and they'll be restored as a nation. And uh, But he says right now their rejection is not complete. It's not, you know, because I'm a Jew and I'm saved, so there are Jews who are saved. So it's not complete rejection and it's not final because they'll... Jesus will turn and, and they'll come back. Chapter 12 through 15, there is a kind of a practical section about how we are to work out this salvation in relation to God, in relation to other believers, in relation to unbelievers, in relation to the state. You know, Romans 13. There's a big section about the weaker brother. That's all Jew-Gentile again. What about people who still think you have to observe days and you have to eat kosher? What do you do about that? How does that fit into this new gospel? A lot of stuff there. But let's hurry on here for time. So we're at the close of the third missionary journey. Paul's in Corinth here in uh, Acts chapter 20. And uh, from Corinth, Paul goes on to Troas. We notice in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, he stays three months. And Paul's plan is to go from Corinth back to Jerusalem. There's a port there, Sincrea. He can catch a boat and go right back. But it says, interesting, there was a plot against him. I say apparently a plot to kill him at sea as he got on the ship at Sincrea. So Paul's plan was to get on the ship and come back this way, but because there was this plot, he decides, I'm going to backtrack. I'm going to go back through Macedonia and go back this way, and uh, he'll take a ship all the way down this way. So he's, he's trying to avoid this uh, people who are, who are trying to plot to kill him. Um, he has some people with him, verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. These are people who are representatives of the churches. Paul's carrying a lot of money here. He's carrying money. Now, remember I said he had written to the Corinthians and saying, Hey, the Macedonians have been giving. I want you to give. I didn't read the, if you read the end of Romans, he says, The Macedonians and the Achaeans have been pleased to give a large offering, and I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So he's planning to take this off into Jerusalem. He's got these men with him. But when he gets on the ship, there's this plot. So he goes back, gets off the ship, goes back by land and traces his step back through Macedonia. Um, 
he goes to Macedonia and says, we sail from Philippi. Now we pick up Luke again. We last left Luke in Acts chapter 16. Luke was with him when he got the Macedonian call. He goes over to Philippi's second missionary journey and Luke is gone. Luke stays there that whole time. During the rest of the second missionary journey, all the third missionary journey, and now back, we sailed from Philippi and joined the others at Troas. So Paul sails back to uh, from Philippi to Troas. He's making his way back to uh, Jerusalem. They meet on the first day of the week. We came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking to midnight. This is this is the text preachers love, you know, speaking to midnight. But you know that this, this is going to be his last time. He's he's leaving. Apparently, they're meeting at night. You notice they're meeting at night uh, because in the ancient world, Sunday was a work day. There was no Sunday off, you know, there was, there was a work day. So apparently the church generally met probably when people, the slaves could be free and others had finished their task and so forth. And that's why, and he stays there, you know, and speaks all night long and then says farewell. So Paul uh, sets sail, they set sail, uh, says we set sail for uh, ASOS, they set sail around here. But Paul walks on foot. And we don't know why he walks. People speculate why he walks. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to think or, you know, whatever it was. He walks over there to Asos. And then they get on a ship, a coastal ship. Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 14. We met us at Asos. We took him on board. We went to Mytilene. We went to Chios, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day we arrived at Miletus. So he arrives at Miletus here, about 30 miles from Ephesus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders, the church people there, to come. Um, you know, we speculate uh, why he did that, why did he land at Miletus. It may have been that, you know, we speculate, but... Maybe the ship just stopped at Miletus. That was it. Many people say Paul didn't want to go back to Ephesus because he's in a hurry. He wants to get back. And you know what it's like. You know, if you know all these people, the apostle, if he goes there, <laughs> he can't just say, shake hands for five minutes and leave. You know, he's going to be there a while. So he calls for the leaders of the church to come to Miletus and he gives them this tremendous, uh, you know, sermon, this exhortation here, beginning. In verse 17, he calls the elders of the church and he tells them about his ministry. He warns them about false teachers from without and false teachers from within the church who will try to destroy the church and so forth. It's a very, very interesting section that he, he uh, says there in his farewell to the elders. And then he... Uh, they're very grieved. They they wept, verse 37, as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that he would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. I'm not sure that was exactly true. I think he thought they would never see them again. There's some evidence he may have gone back there and all. We may be able to get to that on a fourth missionary journey. But here's the close. Uh, here's the, uh, I'm sorry, the... Uh, Acts chapter 21, this is on to Jerusalem. So at uh, Miletus, they get a ship. They continue on to Kos. It says, uh, the next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship uh, crossing over Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. So they find a ship there, and they uh, set sail, 21, verse 2. Um, it says, uh, after, sighting, uh, uh, after sighting Cyprus, verse 3, and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, 
we landed at Tyre where our ship was unloaded, unloaded its cargo. They met some disciples there and so forth who urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, they went on board. They go from Tyre to Ptolemais. 21 verse 7. So this is a coastal ship stopping at these various ports. 21 verse 7. Leaving there the next day we reach Caesarea. Caesarea is the port for Jerusalem. That is you travel by road or trail up to Jerusalem from there. Um, There of course he meets Philip the Evangelist stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We last saw him in Acts 8, remember, about 20 years earlier. Then it says, uh, 21.15, after we started on our way, after they... They had a, Paul has another warning about not going to Jerusalem, saying this is what's going to happen to you. They're going to bind you and if you go to Jerusalem. Uh, after this, we uh, started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. It was a man from Cyprus and one of the earlier disciples. So they finally make their way <coughs> to Jerusalem. That brings us to various events and Paul's defenses at Jerusalem, beginning in 21, verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. So let me just show you some of the things, uh, some of the history, the features of Jerusalem. Um, So this is Jerusalem in the first century. And we're mainly concerned here with the Temple Mount. Uh, and there's a fortress at the uh, northwest corner called the Fortress Antonia. This is where Paul is taken eventually as a prisoner here. So there's the temple here, and there's a court of the Gentiles. So if you're a Gentile, you could come into that court. But you couldn't cross over the balustrade. We'll see that in a moment here. So if you go to Jerusalem today, you actually go to the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall is right there. You stand right there and you look up at the wall. If you ever go to Jerusalem, anybody been to Israel here? This is a, this is a model of Jerusalem. It used to be at a place called the Holy Land Hotel when we went there. And... Uh, so your tour guide would often take you there first and show you the model of Jerusalem and everything. Now it's at the Israel, Israeli Museum, and that costs to get in. So I mean, it's kind of usually you look at the you go to the Israeli Museum at the end of your visit. So I don't know what happens now if you go to a tour, whether you see this or not. But it's a, it's kind of a pretty accurate model of what Jerusalem looked like. And uh, so if we look at that model, we can again see the Temple Mount. Here's the western wall right here. If you were there today, you'd be standing right there at that western wall where the Jews pray. You know, you've seen TV where they pray right there. And uh, so there's that Fortress Antonia where the Roman troops would be, court of the Gentiles. This is called the Royal Stoa. Probably this is where the Sanhedrin met during Paul's time. We're not positive about that. It was around Paul's time they started meeting there. I'm not sure. These little columns here are what's called Solomon's porch. You know, you have reference to Jesus teaching in Solomon's courtyard or porch or stuff. That's that's that. So this is a pretty accurate model of that kind of thing. So Paul arrives at Jerusalem. And I say the we section comes to an end. Probably because the, Paul is the focus of the narrative here at now at this time. We assume Luke is probably in Palestine for a longer time than maybe just 17 and 18. We, uh, you know, we just don't know. <clears throat> um, I say verse 19, undoubtedly Paul presented the collection. The next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James, who is sort of the 
the leader of the church there, obviously, and the elders were present. He greets them, talks about his ministry among the Gentiles. Um, Paul is eventually arrested in the temple. Um, That comes next. uh, Verse 26. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. He went to the temple to give notice of the date and the days of purification would end and an offering would be made for each of them. So you had to purify yourself. You had to immerse yourself in water in something called a mikvah. And they've discovered hundreds of those around Jerusalem, around the temple area and so forth. Um, I, I could show you a picture, but I didn't bring one to show you. But anyway, Paul is purifying himself. But he gets into trouble here. Uh, When the seven days were nearly over, (coughs) some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole... My wife's giving me a drink to drink there. (laughs) Um, Um, As I say, Jews from Asia had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost instigate a riot under the pretense that he, that is Paul, had brought Trophimus, the Gentile representative from Ephesus, beyond the barrier that separated the court of the Gentiles from the temple court reserved for Jews only. So, you got the court of the Gentiles out here, but there's a, a balustrade here. And so, Gentiles cannot go beyond that. Only Jews can go beyond that. The first court, you know, is the court of the women, and then there's the court of the men, and then you know, so forth, court of Israel, and the temple here. So they accuse uh, Paul, hey, this Paul has brought this Gentile into a forbidden area. Well, that's not true. Paul wouldn't do that, you know. He's not going to do anything like that. Um, but that gets, that brings about a big <laughs> riot, a big commotion. Um, they say, uh, this man who is teaching every, everyone everywhere, verse 28, against our law and this place, he brought this Greek in, Trophimus, you know. The whole city is aroused. The people are running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple immediately. The gates were shut. They tried to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So the Roman troops were up here in this fortress Antonia. Uh, they come down to rescue Paul here. <laughs> and uh, he seizes Paul. He chains him up and so forth. And he can't figure out what's going on. Some, some people are shouting one thing, verse 34. Some are shouting another. He orders Paul to be taken to the barracks. But when Paul reaches the steps, uh, he, he's going to speak here. Uh, the soldiers were taken, and he asked in verse 37, may I say something to you? And he says, do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you Egyptian? He's surprised that Paul can speak Greek. He thinks, you know, he's some Jewish rabble-rouser, this Egyptian who started to revolt some years before. He's, Paul says, listen, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no ordinary, a citizen of no ordinary city. Let me speak to the people. So he does. So Paul is probably speaking, you know, around this area here, somewhere up on the steps here. This doesn't show the steps, but there had to be some steps. So he's probably speaking around that area to the people down there. And that's his defense in uh, chapter 21, verses 37 through 22, 22. Um, he speaks up to them in Aramaic. The, the Jews spoke Hebrew and a very similar language called Aramaic that they picked up in the Babylonian captivity. It was very similar to Hebrew. And uh, in fact, there's 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 no this word can mean Aramaic or Hebrew. Like my NIV has a note, or possibly Hebrew. The word can actually mean most. We don't really know. Did Paul speak Aramaic? That's the normal language, or did he speak Hebrew, which Jews in Jerusalem would understand very well? Well, maybe one of the both. But anyway, the commander wouldn't know. He's a Gentile. He wouldn't know what Paul was saying here. He just lets Paul speak. So 
Paul defends his, I say, verse 1, Paul seeks to defend himself from the charge that he's a Jewish apostate. So he's giving his history, all that happened to him. You know, uh, he says, I'm not an apostate. Uh, he He's on the road to Damascus. He's there to persecute these, these, these Christians who are, you know, bad people. <laughs> and all of a sudden, God speaks to me, you know, and that's Jesus of Nazareth and so forth. And uh, so he's telling his story and everything. They're listening and all that. And then all of a sudden, he says something that they can't handle in verse 21. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh-oh. <laughs> Our God wouldn't send anybody to the Gentiles. I mean, you know, God's not interested in the Gentiles. He's interested in us. That, that's just nonsense. Whoever Whoever's told you this is not the true God. He wouldn't send anybody to the Gentiles. So when they hear that, they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. <clears throat> so that causes quite a commotion here. <clears throat> and uh, the uh, Roman soldiers don't know what to do. So they say, let's take him up here to the barracks and let's flog him. Because that's the way you find out information in the ancient world. The Romans did. You just flog people and they'll talk. And then Paul says, wait just a minute here. <laughs> Is it legal for you, verse 25, to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said, what are we going to do? He said, this man's a Roman citizen. And he goes to Paul and says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And remember I, we said before, uh, saying again here, that this was accepted on face value. If you claim to be a Roman citizen, they accepted that. Now, if you told a lie, you were... Big trouble, but they accepted that on face value. So they accept that, you know, and he says, oh. Paul says, I was born a Roman. So the commander said, I had to bribe my way to get citizenship. So the commander doesn't know what to do. He's got this rod in. He's got this guy. He's spoken to the Jews, but he doesn't know what Paul is saying, what to come up. He can't figure this out. Verse 30, the commander wanted to find out what was going on here. So the next day he released him and he ordered the Sanhedrin to come together. And he put, took Paul before the Sanhedrin. So Paul goes before the Sanhedrin. That's probably in this royal stoa here, most likely. And so Paul speaks before the Sanhedrin, beginning in chapter 23. Um, 20, I'm sorry, 22 verse 30, then through 23, 11. And uh, he's trying to defend himself there. Also, and uh, he says, I'm a Pharisee and so forth. And and then he talks about the resurrection and the Sadducees get upset about that and they get into a fight. So the Sanhedrin gets into a quarrel among themselves, you know. Uh, they, uh, the, Sadducees, the Pharisees say, well, if this man believes in the resurrection, he's probably a pretty good guy, you know. And the Sadducees says, no, he's, he's scum. Let's get rid of this guy. So they get into a fight. And they don't know. So the, the poor commander, the Roman guy, he doesn't know what to do. What, what is what's going on here? This I can't I can't find out if this guy is really worthy. You know, there's a great uproar. Uh, verse twelve. The next day, um, some Jews conformed a conspiracy to uh, kill. This is the plot to kill Paul. Verse twelve. And uh, what they were going to do was get him out of the barracks there, out of the fortress, and kill him, you know, on the way. Some 40 Jews had taken an oath. We're not going to, we're not going to eat or drink till we kill this heretic. So, uh, fortunately, Paul's sister has a son. So Paul has a sister in Jerusalem. She has a son. He hears about this. He goes to the commander, says, hey, tells, tells the centurion. And it goes to the commander and he says, this is what they're going to do. So see, the uh, commander is kind of upset here because he could be in trouble if a Roman citizen gets killed. We didn't, he doesn't know who this guy is. He says he's from, he was born a Roman citizen. He's from Tarsus. He could have some important, he could have some big connections. I don't know who this guy is. So if I, if he gets killed under my watch, <laughs> that looks bad for me. So he decides, hey, I'm going to send this guy back to 
the governor in Caesarea. So that's what he does. In chapter 23, verse uh, 23, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them to get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen. He's not taking any chances here. This is the imprisonment and defense at Caesarea. He's not taking any chances. Uh, he got uh, 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. So they do. He writes this letter. And he writes this letter making him sound very good. He says, I found this Roman citizen and they were about to kill him and I rescued him. Now he doesn't mention the fact I was about to flog him to death, but you know, he <laughs> conveniently leaves that little that tidbit out, you know. And uh, so they take him off. They uh, travel by night. They go to Antipatris here first, we're told. Uh, verse 31. The next day, so they spend the night there. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with them while they return to the barracks and they arrived in Caesarea. So they come up here to Caesarea. And this is the uh, home. This is the, the Roman, this is the capital of the province of Judea, the Roman capital. This is where the governor has his residence. And so they take him there and put him in the custody uh, of the governor. Verse uh, 33, they deliver the letter and says, uh, I will hear your case when your accusers get together. You ordered Paul to be held under guard in Herod's palace. If you ever go to Caesarea, you'll see the remains of this palace. When Pansy were there in 2000, they had not excavated this. We didn't actually see, we didn't see this right here. Remember, we didn't see that. But it's mostly underwater. Apparently it looked like this from descriptions that we have. People write about it. It was right there on the peninsula there. And so uh, Paul appears before then the governor Felix here in uh, Acts 21, Acts uh, 24, 1 through 27. He has a defense before Felix. Um, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down. Tertullius, the lawyer, goes down. They called to, When Paul was called in, Tertullius presented the case against Felix and so forth. I mentioned Felix was actually born a slave and freed by Antonio, the mother of the emperor Claudius. So slaves, now these were imperial slaves. The average slave wouldn't rise to be the governor, but uh, this was an imperial slave. And so they they were highly favored. This probably well-educated guy and so forth, even though he's a slave in the emperor's household. And uh, so he is made governor uh, because he's friends with Claudius. Claudius appoints him governor. Um so Paul uh, gives his defense, and he says basically here, verses 14 through 16, he says, the reason they're against me, he says, is I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, Christianity, which they call a sect. And so uh, he gives his whole life story here about him worshiping and following the prophets and so forth, how he came to Jerusalem, verse 17 after being out there on his missionary journeys, I was bringing gifts for the poor, verse 17. Now, I think this verse 17 is what gets Paul into trouble here. Just reading between the lines when he says, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Well, later, you know, uh, Felix listens to this stuff and so forth. But it says at the end of this section, verse 27, um, when two years, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it says in verse 25, Paul talked to Felix and so forth. Felix was afraid. That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. <laughs> so he sent for him frequently. I think the fact that Paul mentions, you know, I brought some money. He sounds like, you know, I'm, you know, this guy could, Give me a little payoff here, and I'd let him go because I don't really see anything wrong with this guy. I'd let him go. 
So uh, he holds him in prison for two years, and then he's succeeded by the next governor, Festus. And unfortunately, it is after 12, and so we will try to stop here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us. We're encouraged and humbled by the life of Paul and his dedication to you. It's always a challenge for us, and we pray that we can gain something from his perspective for our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.